Everyone, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Apologetics uh, radio show that helps Christians to become thinkers and thinkers to become Christians. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and with me today is author Kirk Hastings. Hi, Mike. How are you, Kirk? Good to see you again. Nice Kirk, to be here. We have a, a wonderful, uh, interesting, I believe, show uh, lined up uh, for our listening audience. Today, we're going to talk about the reliability of of the New Testament, and specifically we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look, be looking at some of the um, arguments from the outside world, from the non-believing world, that the Bible is a bunch of uh, stuff. Junk, Myths and legends myth, exactly. and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to try to go through this in a logically coherent uh, way to look at, at the historicity of the Bible and what um, uh, scholars of the documents of antiquity do when they're criticizing or looking at something for its authenticity as well as its reliability. And we're going to use some of the textual criticisms uh, that have been uh, brought to bear against the Bible and show how wonderfully well it uh, stands up against these criticisms from the outside world. And we're going to try to put put to rest some of the myths that are surrounding uh, some of the belief sets that are out there that are contrary to um, what uh, biblical scholars, uh, both believers and non-believers alike, believed to be the truth about the Bible and its um, reliability and its historicity and its authenticity. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be talking about that. But before we do that, I just wanted to uh, make a comment about uh, Keith. Keith Kendricks is on the road. Uh, He went up to uh, Colgate uh, this weekend for his son's uh, graduation from Colgate University. Uh, Stephen Kendricks is uh, in ROTC, and he will be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army and will be on his way out to Seattle shortly for his uh, his training and then ultimately his assignment. And I wanted to uh, wish uh, Stephen well, and uh, we thank God that uh, we have young men like him who are willing to uh, stand and fight uh, for our country and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, men of integrity. Uh, because it's so hard to find young people today who will stand on the Word of God uh, with the integrity that these, this, this young man uh, has demonstrated in the past. He is an Eagle Scout and uh, is a young man par excellence, and, and uh, Stephen Kendricks, we wish you uh, well. Um, the other comment that I wanted to uh, say before we get on with this show is that this show is being supported in part by uh, Grace Community Church of Winslow. Uh, you can check out their website, a place for grace org. That's a place, the number four, grace.org. Uh, you can also check out our website, um, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And if you've missed a show or would like to uh, check out what we've done in the past, we have audio files for the last 75 shows that we've done uh, that... Um, outline a variety of topics. And Kirk, I believe this is probably about the seventh or eighth time you've been on the show with us. And, and Yeah, I think so. Keith and I really appreciate that since uh, you are uh, an author and uh, an apologist yourself, and I understand that you just uh, published your fourth book. Yes, I just had another, uh, a second novel published. I've had two novels so far and two nonfiction books. That's awesome. Tell, published. Us, tell us just a little bit about each one. 
Uh, well, my first book was a historical adventure novel called The Fury of Achilles that was set in the Trojan War era and uh, actually managed to squeeze a little biblical history into that one, believe it or not. Um, but it all fit. I made sure it all fit. And uh, my second book was called Doo-Wop Motels, which is basically a picture book about the 50s and 60s archi motel architecture in Wildwood, New Jersey, which is where I grew up. And uh, let's see, my third book was, of course, What is Truth, that we've mentioned a few times on this program, where I uh, go through a lot of the same topics that you deal with on this program, about the... Um, the uh, archaeological and historical and scientific evidences that support the Bible. And uh, then I have um, my fourth book. It's called The Infinity Man. is a kind of a science fiction-y adventure type novel, even though it's actually set in the early 1970s. But it's got a little bit of a science fiction element in it that it deals with a robot that looks like a human being but doesn't know where he came from or who built him or for what purpose. And the book is about him figuring out the answers to all these questions. Wow, it sounds like a lot of our listening audience too, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, um, we are going to be using uh, some of the information that's in Kirk's third book, What is Truth, uh, as supporting material for some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. But let's, let's jump right into the, uh, um, um, the argument today, and that's whether or not the... Um, the New Testament is a, a reliable document of antiquity, and we're since I first uh, started considering Christianity, this has always been one of the most interesting topics for me. Is how can we know that the Bible is a reliable document that what it says is accurate and truthful? Right, and one of the things you know that's easy for you and me as a believer, and certainly for anybody else who's listening uh, that is a believer, is that the the Bible is certainly self attesting and the Holy Spirit confirms it. We know it, we can feel it, we believe it, and we trust in that. Mm -hmm. But for an outsider, uh, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, unless somebody goes into it with a completely open mind, uh, and then the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit starts to convict them, and they understand that what they are reading is actually truth, okay? Mm -hmm. But until they come to that, that revelation within their own heart and their own mind, it's not going to mean anything to them. Mm -hmm. And the other, the other problem that we can face, too, with somebody who is a believer, is that, um, you know, we have Christians who are looking for an intellectual basis for their faith, and, and this type of a show is going to help them with that. So with that in mind, we're going to try to throw out some of the objections that the non-believing public will often throw at Christians when it comes to the Bible and its veracity, its reliability, its authenticity. so That's kind of how I started out in my search for truth, is uh, mm -hmm. when I was in my mid-20s, I decided that it was time for me to look into this idea of the different religions of the world and see what they were about, because up to that point, I hadn't really grown up with any religious training at all. I really mm. didn't know anything about any of the religions of the world, even Christianity. And I decided that it was time to take a look at this stuff and see if there was anything to it. And if so, was there any particular religion that had more going for it than any of the others? And I decided, as you know, a non-believer at the time, I decided to look at it from an intellectual point of view. What, 
what does the evidence show? Where does the evidence lead me? Does it lead me to a particular religion or away from all of them? Or what is it going to do? So I started studying the evidence. Right. And, and you know, the three objections that we're going to try to uh, tear down, if you will, over the next 45 minutes are the following. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the book of Mark because it is commonly held by historians and biblical scholars alike that the book of Mark was the first of the four Gospels to be written, okay? Mm -hmm. Roughly 60 A.D., um, you know, maybe 30 years or so after Christ's uh, life, uh, death, burial, resurrection. Mm -hmm. So that is the one that was written first, first one out of the gates. We're going to be looking at that because— And it was used kind of, they believe, as a basis for Matthew and Luke. That That is correct. Well. Yeah, roughly 80 percent of the information that's in Mark uh, was used as source uh, reference material for some of the other gospel writers. That right. is correct. So if we can prove that Mark is historically uh, reliable mm -hmm. and uh, truthful— then uh, it's easy to build on the argument that uh, Luke and uh, um, Matthew also are equally uh, reliable. Right. But the, the three objections that the, the non-believing world will commonly throw at us is that the book of Mark was not accurately translated, okay, into the Greek. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's number one. Objection number two was that uh, um, Mark did not write a... Um, faithfully reproduced uh, document, okay? Uh, now, what do I mean by that? The original autograph, which was the original writing of Mark, we don't have today, okay? Mm -hmm. All we have are copies, and the most, uh, I, I should say, the oldest copy uh, was 200 years A.D., okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but we Which could, is about 170 years after Christ lived. Correct. So it's maybe 140 years after the original uh, document was written. Which actually, in historical terms, is not a very long time. Correct. At and all. And we're going to get into that once we try to uh, tear down some of these arguments. And the third objection uh, was that uh, Mark was not able or willing to offer a testimony uh, that was um, correct. In other words, it's possible that he could have embellished it, he could put a spin on it, he could have made it up, and so forth. He might have been biased in uh, modern terms. Uh, exactly. So these three objections we're going to be looking at critically, and I would invite our listening audience uh, to give us a call if you have a uh, particular uh, spin on this. Uh, the telephone number here at the station is 398-1020, and our sound engineer, Tom, is uh, waiting, uh, standing by at the, the telephone, so that if you do have a question, a concern, a comment, uh, please feel free to call us at 398 1020. Actually, in the interest of accuracy, we should say that Tom is sitting by. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> issue number one, the objection of inaccurate translation. And, and basically, th this is the issue. Uh, the Church has been biased in its translation. There are so many uh, Bible translations that are out there, uh, and many of them can say whatever you want, and through the years they've been copied and and recopied, and, and they're just not historically accurate. Mm -hmm. So that's that's really the, the issue stated. Uh, now, just for the record, I should say that uh, Bible scholars, by and large, uh, do not agree with this position. Okay, this is really a non-issue in their, their minds because they've looked at these things critically, and they've used textual criticisms, and there's a science behind that, and they, they do not believe that any of these translation uh, presuppositions are correct by the outside world. Mm -hmm. Okay, many of these documents have been looked at and scrutinized, and uh, by and large, 
you can take any uh, New, Tra- New Testament translation to a Greek scholar and put an interlinear Greek Bible text next to, let's say, Philippians. You pick your chapter in the New Testament, it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. uh, and ask him, does this Greek translation, let's say, uh, opposed to this NIV or NAS or New King James or King James, you pick, you pick it, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter which translation you pick, ask that Greek scholar in a university setting, whether he's a believer or not, ask him if there's a reasonable translation here between the New Testament English language Bible that we're using today mm-hmm. relative to the original Greek text uh, written in Matthew's time. Is it a reasonable translation? And by and large, 100% of the time they're going to say, yes, it is. It's a reasonable translation. So this is really not an issue when it comes to the academic uh, scholars uh, who are looking at Greek texts and translations. But and Perhaps we should point out, too, that what we're talking about here is the more broadly used versions of the Bible, such as the New King James or the New American Standard or the NIV or whatever. We're not necessarily talking about versions of the Bible done for specific groups like a Jehovah's Witness Bible or a Mormon Bible that's or correct. something that's been translated by a specific group. Right. The The Mormon Bible and the um, Jehovah's Witness Bible do not stand up to the scrutiny of Old Testament, New Testament scholars when it comes to books of antiquity. They, yes. have, they have been rewritten in the last A 100. case can be made that certain uh, passages in them are not accurately translated and perhaps reflect more the beliefs of their group rather than what the original documents actually Correct. said. The, these were books that were written by particular sects that aren't necessarily um, Christian in the, the true sense of being Christian. Okay? Right. Uh, we're, when we talk about NIV, we're talking about the uh, the new international version. Right. Um, and you know what, specifically, what we ought to do, uh, Kirk, is, is uh, make a comment about uh, the real difference between, let's say, a, a new American standard and a new international version. Mm-hmm. Um, the two translations uh, that we're going to talk about um, are very accurate renditions in the English 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 language relative to the original Greek text uh, that Mark used. There's a little bit of a difference, though, in them, in that um, the NAS, the New American um, um, Standard Bible, has a formal dynamic equivalency in its translation strategy. What that means is that um, it translates into the English language uh, from the original Greek almost verbatim into English, okay? I've always been given to understand that the New American Standard is one of the most, if not the most accurate word-for-word translation of all the Bible versions. That is correct. Now, the Which old- is why I personally use that one, but that, okay. I'm not saying that's the only one you can use, but that's the one I prefer to use. Right. It can be awkward at times because the Greek language translating into the English language verbatim makes it awkward. You mm-hmm. have to figure out what it's really saying to you. Okay. Right. You have to uh, understand how they said things back then to understand right. some of it. Right. The syntax and the lexicon is such that it's a it's a verbatim translation, but it can be awkward when it's put directly into English. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about what they're saying to you. But it is a very accurate translation. The NIV, on the other hand, uses a dynamic equivalency translation whereby the meaning of a passage is translated. So there's a little bit more of a looseness in the language 
but it's very readable and very understandable. You don't have to think that much about what it's saying to you because what it's saying to you is still correct. Right. It's just not word for word or verbatim. It's more in modern language so that modern readers can better understand what it's trying to say. That's correct. Now, the only problem with that is that 100 years or 200 years from now, that NIV version, based on the way languages evolve, may not have the same meaning 200 years from now as it does today. Right. So, whereas the... The, um, the, the slang en- changes and vernacular and the way right. we use language or whatever changes, it might become somewhat obsolete in some ways. Correct. Which is why, incidentally, you'll see from time to time, you'll see revised, updated versions of Bibles. That doesn't mean that they're changing what the Bible is saying. They're just saying that this may be a new translation that's been made to be better understood by people using modern language. Right. Now, one of the things that I've heard from many patients of mine is that if I'm not reading the New King James or the King James, I might, might as well not read anything because that is the most accurate translation. And the fact be known, the NIV and the NAS are translated from um, the Cummings BB Papyrus, which is dated at 200 years A.D., Mm-hmm. whereas the King James is translated from a papyrus that's dated 900 A.D. We've actually come into older documents since the time the new the King James Version was translated. That, that's correct. Which, in some ways, you could say that we have an even more accurate translation of the Bible now than they did 400 years ago. And that is correct. Histori- Not that the King James is inaccurate, but... Historical scholars feel that the closer you are to the events recorded... Right. the more accurate the rendition. So right. if you're basing your, your rendition upon a, a, um, a translation from 200 years after the events, it's probably a little bit more accurate than something that's 900 years uh, after the events. That just stands to right. reason. But even the differences between like the New American Standard and the uh, original King James Version are very, very slight, we should say. It's not like we're saying the King James is no longer accurate, don't read that. That is correct. Now, uh, the the differences are actually very small between the two and really don't affect any of the major ideas or doctrines in the Bible. That's correct. Now, one of the things that I've I've always said, and this is something that I learned from my own pastor, Pastor Gary Schmidt, he said that the best Bible version is the one that you read. You know, so if you have a version that's on the on the shelf that's collecting dust, that's not, that's not doing anybody any good. Mm-hmm. So between you and me, it doesn't matter to me if you're reading NIV or NAS or New King James or King James. Or, or the Message or the Good News Bible, which correct. are very loose translations. Correct. Uh, and the, the Catholic Bible, the New Jerusalem Bible, that's okay. They're all good translations. It's better than not reading it at all. That's correct. So we're not really espousing one, one version or another. Uh, right. What we're saying is that the uh, historical translations from the original Greek documents into the present-day English language are all acceptable, according to Greek scholars. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it doesn't matter if the Greek scholar is a Christian or a non-Christian, whether or not they're at a Christian university or not. They will tell you that uh, as a translation goes from the original Mark Greek manuscript going back to A.D. 200, what we're seeing today in English type and print is an acceptable translation. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so anyway. The, the Bibles that we have in our possession today contain accurate translations of the Greek version of the Gospel of Mark. Now, with that being said, um, I think that we can uh, uh, throw out objection number one, that the translations were inaccurate. Okay, 
Um, the second issue that, that we're going to talk about is about tainted transmission. Now, I wanted to uh, remind our listening audience that uh, if you have any questions or concerns about these topics, and we're, today we're talking about the reliability of the New Testament, you can call us at 398-1020. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. I'm Kirk Hastings, guest host for the week. And I thank you, Kirk, for coming on board, especially since you have some authorship and some credibility with respect to uh, Christian apologetics. Um, but anyway, the second uh, objection is tainted transmission. And basically, th- this is what the world is telling us when they, when they um, object uh, on these grounds. They're saying that they cannot rely, rely on any tainted copies um, that actually are, are standing in place of Mark's original gospel document. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the original papyrus that Mark wrote at 60 A.D. doesn't exist. Sure. Nothing, no papyrus could last that long. No papyrus lasts that long. In fact, uh, many of the original Pauline epistles, the letters that were sent from ro- one church to the next, on and on down the line, they fell apart as well. All sure. we have are written copies that were written by the church elders. Once they had a copy of one of Paul's original letters, they would copy it down and then disperse it to the other planted churches around them. Mm-hmm. Okay, But all of the original documents of antiquity, even don't exist. Sure. We have copies of those things. We don't have an original copy of Caesar's Gallic Wars or the Iliad or any of those kind of documents that, either. That is correct. It's you not know, just the Bible. You know, if, if you want to look at some of these uh, documents of antiquity, for instance, uh, Thucydides' history, okay? Th- this was an Athenian general who wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars, okay? We don't have his original document, okay? This, we're talking about, uh, what, about 400 B.C. here? Uh well, that these events took place? Well, yes, but here's, here's the point. There's about a thousand years between the writing of Thucydides' original history of the Peloponnesian Wars mm-hmm. and the original and earliest copies. Okay, there, We just don't have anything that's even close. Right. Okay, and if you look at Tacitus's Annales, uh, you know, we don't have any of those original documents either. Uh, we so have, that begins to make the 140-year gap of the Mark document look small pretty in good, comparison. Right. In fact, we only have about eight copies of uh, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian Wars, and we have about 20 copies of Tacitus's uh, Annales. So, you know, when we have thousands of copies of Mark going back to 200 and 300 years A.D. Thousands. Yep. That's yes. not hundreds, that's, that's thousands. thousands. Right, yep. and, the, and the gap, that time gap, is minimal compared to other uh, documents of, uh, of antiquity. Yeah, so it it's makes, amazing yeah, so how we, many copies we have. We should be re- running towards them in a reliable context and not just saying, well, sure. time out, that this can't be relied upon. Right. You know, so the point is, is that— And if you're going to throw something like Mark out because of this, then you'd have to throw literally just about every single historical document we have out the window. That That is correct. So, you know, Mark, like I said, wrote his gospel in about uh, 60 A.D. It was about 30 years after the, the life and times of Jesus. Which is nothing. Which is nothing when you compare it to the 1,000 or 1,400-year gaps of the, 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 the most recent copy of some of those other documents of right. antiquity. So we can trust that they are historically reliable and accurate. Yep. None of the scholars look at any of those documents of antiquity 
with a prejudiced eye. But it's interesting how the world still looks at the copied documents of New Testament letters and writings of the original four Gospels with a tainted eye. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're not given the benefit of the doubt, whereas documents that are copied thousands of years later are accepted as, as gospel truth. I find that kind of odd. Right. You know, when you, That was something that really surprised me when I first found out that most serious historians and scholars and whatever have no problem with the biblical documents whatsoever. It's the popular media people that have a problem with it because they don't necessarily want to believe it. That is correct. So they're looking for excuses to undermine it. And, you know, one of, one of the, uh, the key things that... Uh, uh, the science of textual criticism uses is how many copies do we have of the original and how many um, early copies were written. In other words, the earliest copies being closest to the original activity, you know, whether it was the Peloponnesian Wars or, or the life and times of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So when you look at them, nothing comes close to what we have as far as the gospel writings. Yep. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, but yet uh, there's this this prejudice that's being offered up by the media and by modern man. And I might also insert that also goes for the so-called holy books of most other religions. There, If you study how they came about and how they were written and put together, it doesn't compare in any way to how the Bible was put together. The Bible is in a class by itself, literally. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, let's talk a little bit about uh, the science of textual criticism uh, that helps us determine which copies are more accurate. Um, You know, when you look at um, all of the copies of Mark and you put them together, there are some very, very minor variations in a word or a place or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there's really nothing major when it comes to a critical doctrine within the New Testament that would make us believe that Mark is telling us something that's incorrect or that something was incorrectly copied. Mm-hmm. You know, there are little minor textual variations which critics alike will say that nothing really has changed in the original message or the original writing. My understanding Mark. from what I've read is those changes, to give you some examples, are words like the, a, or connecting verbs or the tenses of verbs like you know, say instead of said, or, you know, minor things like that, which, which really do not affect what the document's saying at all. Well, there are, there are some minor, there, there may be a minor geographical location or a, a minor article, like you're saying, and there's some other things like in Mark 1.1 where um, it talks about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, some of the original documents don't say the Son of God, mm-hmm. but if you look down to verse not one nine, you know, chapter 1, verse 9, Mm-hmm. God booms out in his thundering voice, my son with whom I am most pleased. Okay. So he is the son of God. In other words, it just confirms it nine nine right. lines later, but it's not a major criticism, you know, that it was okay. in one Bible, but not, you know, one rendition of Mark, but not another. So these are very, very minor um, right. uh Trans, transitional uh, statements, but nothing of major importance. Sure. So what we have in front of us when you put together all of the original Mark documents together is that we have a 99% rendition of what was written then is accurate. Okay, so it's about 99% accurate. I'd even say in my book uh, I have 99.5%. Okay, well, I'll, I'll accept that. Which is pretty darn close. Yeah. Um, you know, let, let's talk about the NIV again a little bit. That's the uh, the New International Version. 
again, this was translated from a, a manuscript tradition that guarantees that there was a reliable transmission of the original uh, uh, Greek manuscript. Like I said, it goes back to 200 A.D. Mm-hmm. So we know that that's reliable. We know that it's one of the oldest source documents that we have available that's closest to the actual life and times of Jesus. So with that being said, uh, along with the uh, science of textual criticism, I think that it's safe to say that we can defend uh, that there is an accurate rendition of the Gospel of Mark that was written 60 years A.D., about 30 years or so after the life and times of Christ. Right. So, uh, In the lifetime of people that knew him, this was published. That is correct. Now, one one of the things that we're going to talk about is um, the testimony of Mark, okay? The, uh, the objection that Mark could have written an unreliable testimony, okay? okay. We're going to get into that, and I would um, uh, encourage our listening audience to uh, give us a call if you have any questions or concerns about today's topic, and that's the historical reliability of the New Testament. Uh, you can call us at 398-1020. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. I'm the guest host, Kirk Hastings, Welcome for this week. Thank you, Kirk. I appreciate your pinch-hitting for Keith, who is uh, on the road at Colgate University going to his son's graduation. So get back safely, Keith and Nancy. But anyway, uh, we're going to talk about the third objection, and that's whether or not Mark's testimony is actually reliable. And here's, here's the issue. This is what the world and the media will throw up at uh, Bible-believing uh, Christians. We can't really trust Mark is telling us the truth about Jesus. He wasn't even on the scene when Jesus was into his public ministry. What do you think about that, Kirk? That's true. I was going to ask you that question. Okay, what's, what's the answer to that? Mark actually was not present at the time that Jesus was doing his public ministry. Mark mm-hmm. was actually a protege of Peter. Okay. Okay, and who he, was there? Who was there? He was it at Jesus's side and ran whenever he could. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was very impetuous and very impulsive and did a lot of stuff. This that, is like Larry King having Peter on his show one evening and say, saying, "Okay, Peter, what's the story? What did you see?" Well, and and what would happen is Peter was teaching and preaching um, incredibly during this time frame during the early church, mm-hmm. but was not writing anything down. He had a protege, his own disciple, if you will. Mm-hmm. His name was John Mark. This is who we ascribe the New Testament document uh, that we call the Gospel of Mark. Right. And Mark was writing down everything that Peter was teaching and preaching. Okay? Right. Uh-huh. So we have somebody who is a close follower of Peter, uh, who was skilled in Greek, and he wrote everything down that Peter was teaching and preaching about Jesus. And Peter was an eyewitness of and, what he was talking about. And Peter was the eyewitness. So it's almost a, a, a biography, if you will, of Peter's rendition of the gospel written in the hand of Mark. Mm-hmm. Okay? So uh, when you combine the writings of Mark and Peter and Paul, and you look at the whole thing and you boil it down, these were these were people who weren't necessarily corroborating their stories because they were in different places at different times, okay? There was no internet communication. There were were no printing presses at that time. A lot of the things were handed down by oral tradition. They weren't all in contact by cell phone, were they? No, no, there was no (laughs) no communication. Whatever was written down— And, of course, the Apostle Paul came even later. 
Well, the Apostle Paul was writing his stuff uh, A.D. 40 to 60. Right. Okay. The Gospel of Mark was written But I mean, he wasn't in the hip pocket of these other guys following them around. He was on his own. That is correct. And saying the same things. That is correct. So when you have like three or four guys that are all out there on their own and they're all saying the same thing, they're kind of corroborating one another that way. Well, their stories are being corroborated, but they weren't in collusion. Right. Okay. And that's a big difference there. So what we're saying is that uh, the reliability of, of Mark's testimony is correct because he was writing down pretty much verbatim what the eyewitness Peter, one of the original 12, was teaching and preaching during that uh, 30 years or so after Christ um, lived, was uh, crucified, died, and rose again. Mm-hmm. So the the, the storyline is pretty much uh, the same. Now, you know, one, one of the interesting... Um, criticisms, and we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis a little bit here. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, brought up uh, what we call the great trilemma, okay, that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, let me let me just tease that That's out a little bit. That's one of the bit. first books I read after I became a Christian, mm-hmm. along with Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Oh, yes. Was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And, Great book. And by the way, uh, Josh McDowell did a sequel to Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it was more evidence that demands a right. verdict. Right. So if if you're looking, people, for a, um, a nice text along those lines, um, uh, we would highly recommend that you look at uh, Josh McDowell's uh, um, evidence that demands a verdict. Uh, These were uh, written in the 70s and still hold uh, factual truth today for the reliability of Scripture. And Josh McDowell is one of the foremost authorities on on the historicity and the veracity of uh, New and Old Testament documents and the painstaking um, copying that went into writing these documents Mm -hmm. year after year so that copies could be preserved and shared um, alike with um, the growing church uh, during that time uh, frame. And he started out as a skeptic. He didn't believe in Christianity, and he actually started out to disprove Christianity when he started doing his research. Mm-hmm. And the more research he did, the more he got turned around in the other direction, and then he eventually became a Christian, and then evidence that demands a verdict was the result of his research. You know, uh, one, he didn't set out to write that book. He set out to write a book disproving Christianity and ended up 180 degrees in the other direction. And you know what's interesting, Kirk? Most people who are ardent critics of the Bible have never really read the Bible. No. Okay? No. And I love a quote that Spurgeon once said, uh, Spurgeon being one of the, the greatest uh, 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 writers and, and ministers of, of you know New Times. Mm-hmm. He said this, the way you defend the Bible is the same way you defend a lion. Let it loose. Okay? <laughs> let these people read the Bible with an open mind and let the Holy Spirit do its work. Okay? And like most people who entered into this um, endeavor as a skeptic, they come back convicted and believing. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because once you read this this greatest book of all times, more more books of the Bible have been published and written and uh, commented on than any other work mm-hmm. in in the modern world. It's still the best-selling book around. Number one on the bestseller list, but it's never recorded on the New York Times bestseller list because no, year after year because it would year, be there every week. Yeah, that's correct. 
and uh, God forbid that they should give it uh, uh, press as the number one uh, bestseller week after week after week. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to C.S. Lewis's great trilemma that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. Well, let, let's let's tease that out a little bit. Um, if somebody makes a statement, let's say that I am the Son of God, which basically Jesus says mm-hmm. in his in his uh, New Testament uh, uh, gospels. Okay, it's either true or it's false. Right. Okay. Now, when you look at the false part of that equation, it can actually be one of two things. Okay. Either Jesus was uh, a lunatic, he was schizophrenic, and didn't understand that he clearly wasn't the, the son of God and that he was in outer space someplace or he was on drugs or... He, he wasn't, in other words, but he thought he was. He thought he was, but he was not mentally competent at what he was saying. Right. Okay, so therefore he was a lunatic. Right. Okay, now on the other hand, if he knew for certain that he wasn't the son of God, but he was saying it, then he's a liar. He's a deceiver. Right. Okay? right. And thirdly, the, the, other, the other corollary is that what he was saying was true. Right. So those are the three options. Either he was Lord and the Son of God. Right. Or he was lying and trying to deceive people. Right. Okay. Or that he was, in fact, crazy. Right. Okay. Now, which of the three options do you conclude? Okay. You and I believe that he was the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Anybody that studies the things he said and did in his life, I think, would inevitably have to go with the third option. The the other two just don't fit at all. Right. Now, C.S. Lewis's writings 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, and by the way, he was a terrific, terrific professor at, at Oxford and, and very well thought of mm-hmm. uh, and a believer. And a skeptic also. Uh, <laughs> he but, started out as a skeptic. Th- that is true. But the point is, is that he silenced many of the skeptics once he went through the, the rational, intellectual endeavor of writing about these things. Right. Okay, because there was only one conclusion that you could come to, and that he was telling the truth, Christ was telling the truth, and that he was Lord of Lords, mm-hmm. King of Kings. Now, something new has cropped up since C.S. Lewis defended the faith uh, 60 years ago. Okay. The problem that we have is something called the Jesus Seminar. Okay. Now, this is something that's getting a lot of press, and it's a, it's a, a consortium of modern-day theologians who aren't necessarily believers, and that they believe that there's one other L in the trilemma that C.S. Lewis proposed in his book, Mere Christianity. Okay. The other L, that Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or a lord. The other L is legend. Okay. okay? And the legendary part of this, and this is what they're bringing up now in the Jesus Seminar, is that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. He never said that he was the Son of God that the whole New Testament was fabricated around this this legendary itinerant peasant preacher whose name was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, isn't that so we're saying that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the liars. Well, the whole thing was fabricated, okay? okay. Now, the, the problem that we um, have with this, and it's really not a big problem because it can be defended, is that when you look at the collective writings of all of the New Testament writers, there was no collusion. Okay, and they're all writing about the same thing, the same event. And the other thing that we get into is that what happened to the original 12? We, all but one died in defense of their what they were saying. That is correct. John was the only one that was not uh, crucified or tortured or beaten or, 
or killed or staked or assassinated or right. whatever every every other one of them died um defending what they believed defending in. the faith because they actually saw it was true they knew it was true and it was true mm-hmm. and they they went to their respective deaths defending what they believed was true i don't believe that anybody today uh, would do that now that this is very different than a muslim terrorist who wants to strap a bomb on and uh, kill himself because that's you know they're 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 trying to get into heaven that way and that's ill-conceived and it's not something that mm-hmm. that Jesus himself would espouse you know that you that you kill yourself to get into heaven mm-hmm. you know Jesus already did that he's the guy that killed himself allowed himself to be killed so that we would be heirs of Christ and gain a foothold to the kingdom mm-hmm. you know so it's a totally different uh, rational mindset but um one of the things that uh, that we do want to you talk might about. you might be able to make the argument that one or two of the disciples might have been a little crazy in the head about what they believe, but to say that all twelve of them, and if you include the apostle Paul, that's thirteen, that all of them were crazy really stretches coincidence. And and the other thing that you have to do is look at the four or five hundred people who were actually witnesses of Christ's. Uh, ministry on earth after his resurrection mm-hmm. okay so there were there were many many witnesses and even paul and peter would say this in front of crowds when they were talking to them sure. is that you know that these events were true many of you were there and witnessed them mm-hmm. okay and if if during that port- they were talking to people that could have shouted them down if they were telling lies that that is correct because they would know whether they they were there they would know whether what they were saying was accurate or not and one of the greatest movements of all time was created because of the life of this one solitary figure mm-hmm. by the name of Jesus Christ and more again has been written about him than any other figure in modern uh, day history mm-hmm. okay and he set in motion even more than Brad Pitt <laughs> He set into motion... Or Oprah? <laughs> Kirk, I'm trying to be serious here. What are you doing here? You're undermining my show. <laughs> Just trying to relate to our modern audience here. <laughs> okay. All right. Yes, even more so than Oprah. Okay. <clears throat> but anyway, so anyway, um, let, let's talk about some of the, the controversy that this, uh, this Jesus seminar uh, thing is bringing up. Um, their basic presupposition is that uh, the material in our Gospels was invented by the early Church and never actually occurred. Now, I find that that peculiar, very curious, very odd. And I don't think there are very many serious scholars who would agree with that statement. Correct. Or historians, or archaeologists. But it's getting a lot of press lately in, you know, your U.S. News and World Report, your Time, your Newsweek, and so forth, because it makes great copy, especially during the spring months, you know, around Easter, because it sells... Isn't that amazing, the way all this stuff tends to really come to the forefront around Easter and Christmas? Right. And these liberal um, publications are typically tapping into the liberal Protestant branch of, of religion, uh, that is not necessarily a Bible-believing uh, branch of Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these are the, the skeptics who wear a robe or cloth on Sunday mornings, and they're not teaching and preaching Christ crucified. They're they're right. they're doing their own liberal. Brand they don't of, believe the Bible, right? They're 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 they just don't they're, believe it. They're teaching a very liberal brand of theology, yep. uh, and it's unfortunate. 
But some of, some of these basic presuppositions surround around the controversial stories, you know, for instance, how, how Jesus is constantly pitted against the Pharisees. Uh, but, you know, that, that was actually part of what led to Jesus' crucifixion uh, and, and death. Sure. You know, the Pharisees were, they, they, were, they had it with this guy, and they, they wanted to get rid of him because they, that Jesus actually threatened their very... Uh, they were the religious hotshots of their day, and Jesus was competition for them. That's correct. He was drawing people away from them and toward him, and they weren't too pleased with that. Right, and they knew that he could turn their world upside down, and obviously he yep. did. Yep. Um, um, the other thing, the other thing that the uh, the Jesus seminar is popularizing is that they're teaching uh, passages, uh, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount. They're saying that this thing was invented to provide instruction for new converts in the early church. You know, that's typically a sermon or a part of New Testament scripture that is um, one of the uh, greatest teaching and preaching things that Jesus ever did, and that was the Sermon on the Mount. Right. And, one of the greatest uh, speeches ever given. Correct. Um and the other thing was they, they're saying that many of the mir- miracle narratives were invented uh, for apologetical material, you know, to help bring in the new converts, you know. Um, but, again, there were many eyewitnesses who saw these things happen. Sure. Uh, you know, the blind uh, seeing again and the lame uh, walking again and the, the lepers cured and, and um, people who had seizures cured and people who had infections cured, uh, people who were dead were raised again, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things, when you look at the, the whole, are pointing towards uh, Christ, his own healing, his own healing ministry, and his own uh, resurrection. And like many other religious-type stories, these stories didn't come about hundreds of years after Jesus lived. They were spread by people that lived at the same time as Jesus and knew him personally. That's right. These stories were there right from the beginning. There wasn't any time for a legend or a myth to build up there. Right. Um, you know, one of the uh, the other things uh, that I wanted to talk more about was uh, Mark uh, being uh, the protege or the disciple of Peter. You know, he was with Peter many, many years and writing down all the things that uh, Peter was teaching and preaching during that time. Um, orality was the uh, the original m- means of communication in those days. Mm-hmm. People got into great oral traditions, and people would memorize uh, things. Okay, not everybody had a papyrus or a scroll or 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 a Torah or the Pentateuch. They were, as little children, taught to memorize parts of these things in their upbringing, especially in the Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. So the oral tradition and the handing down of verbal materials was the way it went. But it wasn't until later that people said, you know what, this generation is getting old, it's starting to pass, it's time that we start writing these things down for the church to continue. For future generations. For future generations, and that's really what happened. So all of these That's why the Gospels were written down. That's why they were written down, and and, uh, the Pauline epistles, the letters that Paul wrote to the various churches in the New Testament, form the basis, uh, or the majority, of the New Testament. You know, the four Gospels being the um, um, the introduction, if you will, to the life and times and teachings of Jesus through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. But um, Mark, again, is the one that's credited with the earliest uh, rendition of the Gospel, again, about um, uh, 30 years after Jesus uh, was crucified and was raised again. 
Um, so the testimony of the early uh, church fathers and elders and all of the scriptural evidences for Peter's association with Mark are very clear. Uh, there was no collusion. There was no, um, um, I guess, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, other uh, means for which he had some agenda to follow. He was right. just writing down what it was that Peter saw and what Peter preached what, and what Peter knew to be true. Right. And so that's what he wrote he down. He was acting as a reporter. That's exactly correct. And, uh, you know, people uh, take reported evidences in bona fide journals, articles, newspapers, and so forth uh, to be correct, okay, as long as they're corroborated by witnesses. Mm-hmm. Okay, and wh- why is it that biblical uh, teachings and renditions are not treated the same way? It's because there's a skepticism that only uh, Christians can... Uh, uh, learn to defend against. You know, that's that's one of the reasons why we do this apologetic show. And too many people want to put religious truth in a whole different box than any other kind of truth. And the way I see it is it's all the same thing. Right. Truth is truth, whether it's a religious truth or a political truth or, you know, whatever. You know, something's either real or it isn't. There, there's not a separate religious area where all the rules don't apply. Right, and you know one one of the other um, uh, things that the uh, uh, the Jesus uh, seminar is bringing up is all of this controversy, but it's really not controversy when the critics look at it uh, look at it um, um, specifically. Um, you know, many of the controversial topics were addressed by Paul in his letters. You know, whether it was circumcision or you know what you could eat or you know these types of things, mm-hmm. um, Paul took care of them. Uh, in his letters. How you should live the Christian life. Right. He, he dealt with all of that. The Gospels didn't address any of these these controversial topics, although Jesus did talk about uh, what was uh, okay to eat and so forth, but um, Paul took care of most of the controversial topics, mm-hmm. you know, about living in sin and and uh, so forth. Right. So it's not really a, um, something that, that the critics are looking at um, hard and fast because the Gospels stand on their own. They corroborate one another, and, um, um, you know, it's, it's like a, a reporter who's reporting on the Super Bowl. You know, I don't care if you're, you're looking at Fox, Fox News or, or ABC News or, or NBC Nightly News. They're going to give you the same end result, the score, sure. who won the Super Bowl. But depending on one's allegiance to a team, you might have a little bit of a different uh, flavor for sure. it. Sure. Not necessarily a slant or, or an agenda, but a different flavor. The bottom line is that the the end result is the same. But if one station came out and said that the opposite team won the game, where all the other stations were saying something different, who would you question? The one station or all the others? I would actually believe Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just because you're biased, Mike. <laughs> but anyway. Um, um but that's an example of the four Gospels. It's like, you know, if three news channels reported one thing and one reported something different, you would tend to go with the three as being accurate. Well, the Gospels are four different reports from four different people about Jesus' life, and they all corroborate each other and fit in with one another. So, you know, where is the the reason, you know, the rational reason to disbelieve them or to say that they're inaccurate. There there really isn't any basis to say that. You know, what, one of the other uh, reference books that I wanted to uh, uh, lay out there for, for our listening uh, people uh, is a book uh, that was written uh, in part by J.P. Moreland, 
Um, and this, this is really a rebuttal of uh, the Jesus Seminar, and it's called Jesus Under Fire, uh, printed by the Zondervan uh, Publishing, J.P. Moreland, uh, Jesus Under Fire. And again, it's a rebuttal of the liberal views of the, the Jesus uh, Seminar. So I would recommend that uh, you take a look at that if you have uh, any further questions about today's topic, which is the reliability of uh, the New Testament. Um, one of the other things that I, I wanted to uh, um, say in conclusion about Mark uh, was that uh, there is a feel of integrity for what he wrote, unlike other non-canon books uh, that were written, like the Gospel of Thomas and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're wondering about canon, we have done a show specifically on what constitutes uh, the canon that we call the Bible and other books that were left out who, who, you know, these books were not felt to be um, contributing in any way uh, specifically to to the Gospel or the New Testament uh, books, letters, and so forth. And many of them had obvious mistakes in them, which is why they were left out. That is correct. And they didn't feel that uh, uh, these were actually written um, by the Holy Spirit, guiding the pen and the language of the men who wrote them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that, God doesn't make mistakes. So these were left out. So if you want to look further into canon, we did do a show. Uh, you can look that up on our uh, website, evidence for the number four, evidenceforfaith.com, uh, and just scroll through the... Um, uh, the previous uh, shows, and, and it'll help you with, uh, with determining what constitutes canon and what constitutes um, uh, non-biblical uh, truth. Uh, so there were many instances of, of um, you know, the Gospel of Thomas and, and other Gospel accounts that were more mythic and more legend uh, than anything else, and that's why they were left out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you look at the whole of the, the, the Gospels, specifically Mark, because Mark was foundational for many of what uh, the writings that Luke incorporated into his Gospel, as well as what Matthew incorporated in his Gospel. When you look at Mark, it does stand up against the criticisms of, um, of uh, what the world will throw at you, as well as the media. And uh, uh, just to, in summary form, uh, we can say confidently that the, the, the Greek translation of, Matthew, of, of Mark was translated faithfully. We can say for certain that the original document that Mark wrote, that is his autograph, has been faithfully reproduced and transmitted to the Greek manuscripts. And uh, finally, we can say that Mark was able and willing to offer reliable testimony. Uh, so with that being said, I would like to uh, thank you, Kirk, for being on the show and uh, would invite uh, everybody else to listen again and listen in again next Sunday at 4 p.m. And remember, the best reason to be, to be a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>